And uh, we're going to be in the book of James. So if you guys have your Bibles and would like to open to James, that would be great. And uh, while you're turning there, let me pray for us as we, as we begin, as we consider the, the word of the Lord together. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we thank you for the way that it gives us insight and wisdom, the way that it guides us, the way that it instructs us. And so, Lord, today as we open up the book of James together, we just pray that you would, you would grant us understanding, that you would help us. Help us to understand how you would want us to live. Grant us the desire to do that in any circumstance that we face. Lord, speak, we pray. We're listening to what your spirit says. How your word is instructing us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So I got to tell you, the book of James is one has been one of the most contested books of the Bible. It was uh, one of the first books of the New Testament that was written, but it was one of the last books to be adopted. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Part of it is the nature of the book. If you had a chance this week to read the book of James, one of the things you would have noticed is that it's a, a very fast-paced book. If you wrestle with attention deficit things and you like fast-moving things, you probably loved the book of James because you hit this topic and then that one and then that one and then that one and back to this one and that one. It's all over the place. But fast-paced, but yet it's very practical and action-oriented. But another reason that people have had some challenges with the book of James is its author. Who is this James? Who is this guy who wrote the book? In fact, James might actually be, be more accurately translated Jacob. It's the Greek translation or the, the English adjustment of the Greek translation of the name Jacob. So which James is this? Because there are several. In fact, Jesus had two followers named James. One of them is James, the, the uh, other son of Zebedee. There was James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. But one of the things we realize is that James, the son of Zebedee, was also one of the first people martyred. And so even though this was the, one of the very first books written, it most likely was not James, the son of Zebedee, because he didn't live long enough to be able to have gone through this. Another James is James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also one of Jesus' disciples. And a lot of scholars don't think that this was the right James because he would have introduced himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So then who in the world is this James? If you ever have read in the book of Acts... This interesting transition, you're reading, of course, Acts is very historical and timeline oriented. You're, you're reading along and you read about the death of James. And then just a couple of chapters later, you read about another James. And we don't get any insight. We don't hear about who this guy is. It's just James is now leading the Jerusalem council and all these things. Well, who is that James? And we actually think that that is the guy who wrote this book. And, and, and that James is the half brother of Jesus. 
We read about him in Acts chapter 12 and 15, and also the Apostle Paul references him in the book of Galatians as the brother of the Lord. But one of the other challenging elements of the book is the audience. We don't know who it was written to. Most of the books of the Bible, most of the books of the New Testament are written to a a group of Christians in a place. And James just begins by saying to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to all y'all, very southern, all y'all scattered about. Presumably these are Jewish background believers who have undergone some persecution and trials and they're dispersed throughout the region. But as you read through the book, there are elements of this that will remind you of Jesus' teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount. There's also a part of it that makes you think about the book of Proverbs. Because if you remember, Proverbs is a very quick, brief statements that are extremely applicable. And James is filled with that. In fact, the guys at the Bible Project basically summarized the, the format of James's book by saying it's, a, it's short wisdom speeches full of metaphors and one-liners. And it truly is that. In fact, we often will quote, I said several, several months ago that we will use the book of Philippians as a means of reminding us, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, for to me to live is Christ and to die is... We'll say those things. Well, there's a bunch of those here in the book of James. Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Do not be merely hearers of the word, but doers also. So I got to tell you, one of the challenges of preaching this book is not so much as content, because there's a lot of practical content. You could read it. Yeah, I got that. Okay, I can. At least I know what I need to do. Getting it done is a little bit more challenging. In fact, we could meditate on little sections of the book. In fact, on Thursdays, that's what the middle school students and I are doing. We're walking through the book of James right now and, and, and taking it little chunks at a time thinking about this, but what makes this book challenging to preach is its structure. Because at face value, it almost looks like there's no structure at all. James says this, and then he says that, and he says this, and he goes there. It's like, James, come on, man, (laughs) help us out. And it's almost as though sometimes, as James is writing, in fact, you see this early on, if you have your Bibles, this, this, this isn't going to be on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, look very briefly at, at James chapter 2. We're going to talk, dive into this more. But I want to help you see some of what might have been going through James's mind as the Holy Spirit is leading him to write this. Because he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect And complete, lacking in nothing. There's the first statement. And then he says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And it's almost like he takes, there's something in James's mind that makes it, well, what are some things that we could lack? Oh, wisdom. And he goes there. And then he he jumps on another topic and then another topic. And and eventually they all kind of circle back and we get these same topics a handful of times. In fact, if um, 
one of the things that we've been doing lately is printing out several of these. These are printouts from the Bible Project, guys, and you can see that on the screen. It, it looks like a mess. This is their rendition of the book of James. So, by the way, if you guys ever want some of these and if you think, well, man, that preacher's a little bit boring, let me just color. That's what my daughter does. There's several of these in the foyer. You're welcome to borrow the pencils and color. But, but one of the things that James does is it's almost as though he hits on a topic and then he comes back to it a couple different times throughout the rest of the book. You can see it kind of referenced there in the middle where he talks about this introduction and then he hits on all these different things. And so today as we look at the book of James, we're going to consider most of what he looks at in, in chapter 1 and there'll be references to other places where he touches on that topic. And so if you want to follow along in your notes, you're welcome to do that. If you want to color the little sheet, you're welcome to do that. If you want to just not do anything, you're welcome to do that too. But here's the first thing we learn from James, and that is that maturing comes through trials, which are gifts from God. You see, right at the beginning, James encourages us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then later on in the chapter, in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You see, trials are not something that we look forward to. I don't know about you, but I, when I can see a trial coming, I, it's not very exciting. But yet James says to count them all joy. What? James, you're crazy. He doesn't mention what forms uh, of trials these might be. And for many of these believers, these guys were experiencing real persecution because they were part of a faith that was possibly outlawed or at least greatly misunderstood. The pagans didn't like them because they didn't worship enough gods. The Jews didn't like them because they were not obeying all of the law. And so nobody liked these new believers, this new faith. They were sort of just tolerated. They were definitely misunderstood. But for us, we have to wonder, what are these trials like? What are these things that God would allow into our lives to test us? Some of these trials are physical as we deal with, with health issues or, or deal with some sort of injury. God, why can't I just grow old and not be in pain? Why do we have to deal with this? Why do I have to have this sickness? Why do I have to deal with that? And yet James has counted all joy. 
Count it all joy. Some of these trials might be emotional, being challenged by mental health or emotional responses to other situations or even simply stress. People have been looking back over this last year, this pandemic, and realizing just how stressful it has been in so many people's lives in different ways. It could be occupational. It may be that new boss who is unethical or micromanaging the work that you've been doing faithfully for 20 years. It might be getting laid off or overlooked for advancement. And some folks, I think, have experienced quite a bit of that over the last years. This pandemic has wreaked havoc on our economy, on our lives. Sometimes these trials God allows in our lives are relational. Dealing with conflict with a neighbor or family member. Dealing with that disconnect between a loved one who is not saved and you being saved. The rebellion of a child or even persecution from from someone who might be maligning you in person or online. And then you have the spiritual trials, the trials that are blatantly spiritual as, as, um, as, as we work to be transformed, to change our thinking. God may allow the enemy to attack us in very specific ways, much like he did with Job. We don't understand why God would allow those things, but God uses those things. Physical, emotional, occupational, relational, spiritual, as a means of perfecting us, as a means of refining us. And we get to count these trials as joy because they are working to bring us to maturity or really completion or wholeness. In the middle school class, as I mentioned, we're walking through the book of James right now. We're using Right Now Media, which you guys have access to. In fact, you're welcome to do it. If you forgot how to get on there, just send me an email and I'll show you how to get there. But we're walking through the book of James with this guy named Francis Chan. And as he was talking about these trials... He he said it's sort of like a a metallurgist, someone who works with metal, someone who works with gold. If you've ever watched, I've never really watched this, but the way that they refine gold is they'll heat it up and make it molten and make it melt down. And and then what happens is the, the, the junk, the stuff that is impure comes to the top. So the person who's working with it will scrape off that stuff, that junk, the dirt, the impurities. Until finally he can see his or her own reflection in the molten gold that is that purity that's there. And I think what we have to recognize is that God, as God turns up the heat in our lives with persecution, with trials, he's gradually scraping off all that stuff, that junk, that old self, that sanctifying process that Miss Tammy talked about with the kids. Until finally, as he looks, he sees his reflection in our lives. I think that's why we get to count it all joy. As God removes through, through trials, those attitudes, those reactions, those judgments, those words that we wish we wouldn't say. He pulls those away, revealing more and more of his reflection in us. But later on in in chapter 5, James urges his readers, his listeners, he urges us to have a very long 
view of the trials that we encounter. Much like a farmer who has planted the seed, he's, he's, he's worked the ground, he's planted the seed, he's watched it grow, he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for that fruit to come. Sometimes we have to persevere and wait through those trials that God allows in our lives so that we will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Which leads us to the next topic that we get to think through today, and that is that God is the giver of wisdom. If we will just ask, God is the one who gives us wisdom. We simply need to ask him. You see, as we encounter difficult trials or times, what is our first response? Do we, do we want to push back against it? Do we want to fight against what is coming at us? Or do we take it to the Lord? And James seems to be urging that we would take things to the Lord. He says in, in chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Have you ever experienced the paralysis of analysis? The paralysis of analysis, that inability to make a decision because you keep weighing all the options. You keep looking at it. Danielle and I are, are working through this. We're trying to pick some colors and things to do at our house. And, and, and we, we're headed down this one road and then all of a sudden we change. And it's just at one point in time, Danielle just said, I wish someone else would make this decision for me. But I think that double mindedness that James is speaking about is like that. We're asking God, hey, I need wisdom in the midst of this. But then being double-minded, we're, we don't believe that he is good enough to, to answer that prayer. And so we're waffling and waving back and forth. Uh, and then we get frozen. Asking God for insight and then trying to work it out on our own. Going back and forth on whether or not God is good enough to provide the wisdom we desire. And I, I know sometimes it's hard to hear from the Lord. Sometimes it's difficult to hear Him give some insight in the midst of the trial that you're encountering. And yet one of the things that James mentions in, in the end of the book in chapter 5 is this idea, he, he references, you know, so wisdom we co- comes as we pray to God and as we ask Him. But then in chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, he says, is, any of you, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for another, one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it, as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, I think one of the things James is getting at is, you know, he's not specifically talking about wisdom in that passage, but remember, how do we get wisdom? By asking of God. How do we talk to God? By praying. And so here he's talking about if we lack anything, are we suffering? We need to pray. We need to bring it before God. And then the joy that we have of being in community, that, that confession of sin to one another as we face these trials, as the, that dross, the junk in our lives boils to the top, we can go to one another and say, oh, what, am I, what do I need to learn to get through this? Help me hear what the Lord is saying. And I think that, that, you know, that's why God has, in his wisdom, has provided us elders as a means of praying for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ who, who have that ability to come in from the outside and look and see, oh, this is an area I think that God might be working on refining you. He is sanctifying you here. Will you consider confessing this to him? to us that we might work together sometimes we get that paralysis of analysis because we're trying to ask god and say god i need to hear from you and maybe it's that conversation that you need to have with your brother or sister in christ giving that other perspective god speaking through them helping you See, we we can't always see what needs to be removed, what needs to be confessed. But we can help one another in that refining process and ultimately in that restoration. I think wisdom comes from God. He'll, He'll speak in that still, small voice. But He also speaks in the community of faith as we interact with one another. One of the other topics that James talks about in, in, in this book, in his letter, deals with our words. And if we were to summarize what he says about words, he might tell us, listen quickly, speak carefully, and act consistently. He says in James chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For, anyone, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing. 
For if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. See, there are words that we hear from one another, from other people. Words that we hear that are sometimes sharply or poorly spoken. Sometimes those words are sweet and gentle. Sometimes those words are convicting. And rather than hearing those words and reacting, I think James is encouraging us to take a step back and to process them. I think that's one of the challenges of our social media age and this craze for 24-hour news, that commentary. We have to know what's happening everywhere all the time right now. And everyone has to be the first to react. But what would happen if we would just Take it in, take it to the Lord, process it. I heard this week that Twitter is actually adding a new feature. I think you have to pay for this. But they'll give you a chance to undo your tweet after 30 seconds, up to 30 seconds. You only have 30 seconds to ponder what you just blasted at somebody. Maybe we need a bit more time before we react. But more than just hearing, hearing words, we have to be careful with the words that we say. James dedicates most of this chapter to discuss, most of chapter 3 to discuss the power of the tongue and the encouragement to be careful with what we say, to be thoughtful if we are to become a teacher because the influence that our words have. But the words that we hear, especially from God's, and the words that we, should, that we say should be exemplified in how we live. You see, this is another one of the big controversies in the book of James. This whole idea of faith and works. If we were to, as we've been reading through the other books of the New Testament, we heard loud and clear, and we've been hearing it in the, in the, in the New City Catechism as we, we've been working through Kids Connection With the kids, we've been hearing loud and clear, we are saved by grace through faith alone. And James comes in and he says, in in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, or chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So one of the things, one of the big things I think James is getting at, Remember, at the beginning, he said, trials, those things in our lives, mature us and complete us. In fact, one of the words that that he uses frequently is is a word for perfection or wholeness. It's not that we will be perfect, but we will be whole. What we think, what we believe, how we act will be consistent. What good is it? If we say we believe that God is a God of grace, if we say we believe that God is loving, and yet we're judgmental. What good is it if we say we want to be instruments of God to bring peace in the world, and yet we continue to speak with strife? Our faith must be backed up by by our works. 
Which brings us to the, very, to the final topic that we'll look at in the book of James, and that is that true religion is compassionate and impartial. True religion is compassionate and impartial. On Wednesday, you know, when we do the ice cream Zoom, uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll review the catechism question and answers. And, and we'll give the kids a, a chance to kind of talk through it and process it a, a bit more. I know that's something that Mark and, and the guys in Kids Connection right now are doing that. Um, but the question last week is, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? And the answer is yes, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God. And so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. And so I asked them, I said, what is it that Christians do? What, it, what are things that Christians should do? How would we know that, that we're, how would people know that we're Christians by how we act? And they gave answers like sharing the gospel or going to church or worshiping or praying. And a lot of their answers centered around what we do here. But I wonder if that's, what a lot of us very practically think. I'm a Christian because I go to church on Sunday. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and saved me, but after I leave church Sunday morning, that's it. That's the, that's the extent that God gets in my life. Is it enough to have faith and just go to church, or is there more? And I think that James would answer with a resounding, yes, there is more. And that's why he gets to this idea of religion. In, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And, and I think James is specifically talking about how we treat those who are disadvantaged. People who are left without real aid in the world, specifically orphans and widows. I mean, when you think about it like this, someone who is an orphan, they have no parents truly to care for them. Who, who else is there for them? And I've, I've mentioned before that when Danielle and I have gone to India, in, you know, it's not so much in our culture this way, but in Indian culture, one of the things that you find is that if there is a widow... Typically, their whole family abandons them. Not only do they lose their main source of support, their, you know, their husband in this case, but then the family rejects them. You're a burden. Go away. Just die. And James is saying, no, that must not be. We need to care for those who have no help. Is it a burden? Yeah. But it's also a joy. To get to care for them. Being compassionate toward the beyond being compassionate toward the disadvantaged, James also urges us to be impartial. And not to view the wealthy or the powerful as more important than those who have no influence. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as ye hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he gives an example. One of the things James does a lot is he paints these beautiful pictures. 
And he says, he basically says, imagine what would happen if someone came into your assembly, someone wearing fine gold and, and nice, nice, nice clothes. And you knew, I mean, they just walked in and you knew they had all the money. And man, if they put some of that in the offering plate, ooh, we would have no worries at all. Or that person who drives in with that fancy car. And you think, oh, man, I want to get to know them. Let some of that rub off on me. And then someone else comes in. Their clothes are ripped. They haven't showered in days. You happen to know them from town and they're living in some rented basement apartment. And you've heard about that apartment. It's so moldy and mildewy and you can smell it on them. Two people walk in the door. Who gets our attention? And that's what James is getting at. Are we going to pay attention to the one who can fill the plate? Or pay attention to the one that we're going to empty the plate serving and helping? And James is telling us, don't be impartial. We need to love others regardless of their station in life. It's not very often that political figures would come to Poolsville. I mean, I mean, we are like the hotbed of, of political influence all over the world, right? Everybody wants to come to Poolsville. But imagine what would happen if President Biden or Vice President Harris came to church, walked in the door. You know, they'd have their entourage of all those Secret Service people. Or what if it was former President Trump or vice, former Vice President Pence, and they, they came in and we'd have all that security person. I mean, you'd be just like, wow. And then you have that other person coming in from that basement apartment. Who would get our attention? Who would we be paying attention to? Because one of the things that James points out <laughs> He says, who is it the one that's going to drag you into court? Is it the poor person? Or is it the wealthy person? We need to be mindful that what we believe is lived out in how we act. And that action should be impartial and compassionate. We should see everybody men and women, boys and girls who are created in the image of God, no matter what their background, no matter what their social status, no matter what their orientation is, compassionate and impartial. So James says we need to treat orphans and widows we need to have a, an eye for them. But he also says this. Look again at what it says in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then he adds this. He says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, when we show partiality to certain people, it can stain us. We get that glimmer of, of glory. We go, wow, I would love that or I would hate that. However, it's going to impact you. We can begin to take on their speech and their attitudes, their perspectives. But I think we can also be stained by those other things that we're reading 
those things that we're listening to, those things that we're watching? How are those things leaving a mark on us? Are there shows that we're watching or books that we're reading or sites that we're scanning that are staining us? And I think the the challenge of our visual age is that once we get a picture in our minds, it's locked in there. It doesn't take much to bring that back. And that's a stain that cannot come out no matter how much stain remover we try to get on it. It is difficult. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that, we, that He purifies us, that, that He removes that from us. So we need to be mindful, keeping ourselves unstained from the world. So as we close, I I just want to say, I love the book of James. I I hope you guys had a chance this week to read it. And let me encourage you to go back and read over it again this afternoon. Look at all those other places where James mentions this one topic and brings it back in another place and, and really ponder through what he talks about. But there's one final thing that I want us to think about. And that is that looking at the book of James in light of Jesus Christ, in light of his life, because, you see, I think when, when Jesus walked on earth, he embodied the message that James is trying to get us to consider. Jesus endured suffering, not because he needed to be perfected or matured, but he took on himself the suffering that we deserved, the suffering that we would have for eternity. He took it on him so that we could begin that perfecting that sanctifying process. He sought wisdom from God as he regularly made time to pray. And then even the night before he was crucified there in the garden of Gethsemane, we read that he poured out his heart so much before God that he began to sweat drops of blood in agony saying, God, I don't want to go through this. And yet, thanks be to God, he said, not my will, but yours be done as he willingly laid down his life for us. And I think Jesus also demonstrated with his words how he he carefully listened to the Father and then carefully communicated what the Father, what God the Father was communicating to him and embodied that, helped us to see how we should live. And then finally, he demonstrated true compassionate religion and impartiality by welcoming the sick. And the sinful, by caring for the needy, for calling for the weak. I mean, that's why Jesus got in so much trouble with the Pharisees. He would go and talk to this woman who was a prostitute or who had lived a loose life. He'd go and talk to this person who was a leper. He would go refer to people, talk to Samaritans who were, who were like the, the cursed race of people. He is our perfect example. He embodied what James talked about. And, and I think... One of the interesting things that we kind of learn from Scripture is that James, as Jesus' half-brother, didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But after the cross, after the resurrection, he began to say, wow, my brother, my half-brother, lived what he believed. And he was who he says he was, I believe. And now we get to read about him. 
But I want to just encourage you. You see, Jesus is our perfect example in this, but he's more than that. He is our perfect Savior. And if you've not yet trusted in what Christ has done for you, then let me encourage you, humble yourself before him and say, God, I know that this sin in my life, those imperfections need to be removed. And I know that Jesus Christ has paid for them. So by faith, I trust in what you've done. And now help me live that out. Help me live that out. If you don't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, then let me encourage you. Talk to me afterwards. Send me an email this week, pastor at poolsofabaptist.com. And let's get together and we'll talk about what it means. We'll open scripture together. That you might understand what Christ has done for you and for me. But, but let's pray as we prepare for, to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Father, we do thank you for... Lord, we thank you for the book of James. We thank you for the things that you are teaching us in that, the, the things that you help us understand how we should live. God, we thank you for the trials that you bring in our way. Lord, help us to count them as all joy. And Jesus, we thank you for the way that you embodied the message of James. So much so that you took on yourself the sin that we deserve. Lord, you demonstrated perfect compassion and impartiality by taking the weak things of the world. Pouring out your love for us. Lord, we have nothing to offer you. And yet you graciously and willingly gave up your life for us. So Lord, it is that in that that we celebrate now. That we celebrate this time as we consider what you've done. Thank you for your sacrifice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.